0: Thank you very much. In this talk, I aim to cover the entire history of Oxford University in 40 minutes, (laughs) which is 20 years a minute. And although my talk's in the context of the mathematical sciences, I hope that it'll also appeal to those of you with other interests. In particular, you'll see some names that you may not have associated with mathematics, such as Geoffrey Chaucer, Samuel Pepys, Christopher Wren, Florence Nightingale and Lewis Carroll. So how old is Oxford University? Although it's younger than the two oldest European universities, Bologna and Paris, it can still trace its existence back through 800 years. By 1214, the university already had a chancellor. This was Bishop Test shown here on one of his manuscripts. Test is credited with founding the tradition of scientific thought in medieval Oxford particularly interested in geometry and optics, he wrote in praise of mathematics as follows. The usefulness of considering lines, angles, and figures is the greatest because it is impossible to understand natural philosophy without them. By the power of geometry, the careful observer of natural things can give the causes of all natural effects. His best known followers, Roger Bacon, a Franciscan friar who came up to Oxford very young, taking holy orders when just nineteen? Like Gross Test, he believed that he who knows not mathematics cannot know the other sciences nor the things of this world. And those who have no knowledge of mathematics do not perceive their own ignorance and so do not look for a cure. Most of his money was spent on scientific manuscripts and instruments. And he built an observatory at Folly Bridge that became a place of pilgrimage for scientists. As Samuel Pepys wrote in his diary many years later, so to Fryer Bacon's study. I up and saw it and gave the man a shilling. Oxford, mighty fine place. <laughs> By 1300, scholars were organising themselves into colleges, three of which, University College, Balliol, and Merton, were already in existence. Merton College, founded in 1264, quickly became preeminent in scientific studies, and the Merton school was famous throughout Europe. Its members tried to quantify a range of natural ph- phenomena such as heat, light, and colour, and also less successfully such ideas as grace and charity. <laughs> Associated with Merton was Richard of Wallingford, shown here measuring with compasses. He devised instruments for use in astronomy and navigation and appears on the left with his astronomical clock designed for St. Albans Abbey. But the most important Merton scholar and the greatest English mathematician of the 14th century was Thomas Bradwardine, A migrant from Balliol to Merton, he wrote several influential books, including his Geometrica Speculativa, saying, Mathematics reveals every genuine truth, for it knows every hidden secret. Whoever then has the effrontery to study physics while neglecting mathematics should know from the start that he will never make his entry through the portals of wisdom. (laughs) In 1349, he became Archbishop of Canterbury but died of the Black Death very shortly after. An interesting name that crops up here is Geoffrey Chaucer of Canterbury Tales fame. But he also wrote on mathematical instruments. And in 1393, uh, his, his treatise on the astrolabe was one of the earliest science books to appear in English that the astrolabe was an astronomical and navigational instrument that served as the pocket calculator of its day. Chaucer's own astrolabe is on the left, while a few colleges had instruments named after them, such as the Merton astrolabe here on the right. And there's a nice story about a Merton student called Robert Dobbies using his astrolabe in 1420. One night, after a deep carouse, when on his way from Carfax to Merton, he found it advisable to take his, his bearings. Whipping out his astrolabe, he observed the altitude of the stars, but on getting the view of the firmament through the sight, he fancied that star- the sky and stars were rushing down upon him. Stepping quickly aside, he quietly fell into a large pond. <laughs> Ah, ah, says he, now I am in a nice soft bed, I will rest in the Lord. Recalled to his senses when the cold struck through, he rose from the watery couch and proceeded to his room where he retired to bed fully clothed. On the the morrow, in answer to kind inquiries, he denied all knowledge of the pond. (laughs) In later years, many historians would look back on this time as Oxford's period of greatest glory. One of its lasting legacies is the magnificent Merton Library, which you can still visit today. Incidentally, you may have noticed that the mathematicians we've been mentioning were also astronomers, philosophers, physicians, and probably theologians as well. And this diversity continued until the 17th century. But what about the students? If you'd been a student in Oxford then, how would you have lived? you'd arrived here in your early teens, even as young as ten, and lived in colleges or hostels around the town, paying your rent of about 50 pence per year. For your academic work, you'd be assigned a tutor, who was also responsible for your moral behaviour. But stories of drunkenness or fighting with town boys were common. Until about 1550, your course would have comprised the seven liberal arts shown here. Originating some 2,000 years earlier with the Pythagoreans, the liberal arts split into two parts, the trivium and the quadrivium. The trivium was a four-year course on grammar, rhetoric and logic, leading to a BA degree at the age of about 17 or 18. If you then wish to become an MA you couldn't purchase it by mail order as you can today. You'd have to spend three more years studying the quadrivium, the four mathematical arts of ancient Greece. Let's remind ourselves of these. Arithmetic then mainly involved computing the date of Easter and other dates in the church calendar. While music was based on Pythagorean ideas, where musical intervals correspond to ratios of numbers. An octave the frequencies are in the ratio two to one. A perfect fifth is three to two, and so on. Astronomy included the works of Ptolemy, but also had links with astrology, while geometry included some geography, and also parts of the first two books of Euclid's Elements. And incidentally, the oldest surviving complete manuscript of the elements, dating from the year 888, is the Byzantine one in the Bodleian Library. A few years ago, it was digitized by the Clay Mathematics Institute, and you can visit it online for free. And you'll also see a page of it in the current Bodleian exhibition. In the 15th century, the university went into a decline with the number of masters and students dropping from 2,000 to 300 or so. The magnificent Divinity School was built around then, and also Duke Humphrey's Library in the Bodleian, with its famous painted ceiling. But little mathematics took place at this time. Meanwhile, scientific instruments were springing up around the colleges, such as the Pelican Sundial at Corpus Christi, which dates from the early 16th century. And here you can see a contemporary manuscript. It's said that when Dr Arnold of rugby school fame wanted to express his anger, he'd throw bottles at the sundial as it was the only thing that wouldn't fight back. (coughs) Following the invention of printing in the 15th century, a press was set up in Oxford, which was increasingly involved with university publishing eventually becoming the Oxford University Press. The first Oxford publication with mathematical content was this pamphlet, which showed you how to calculate the date of Easter on your fingers. (laughs) Around this time, two important Oxford mathematicians migrated to Cambridge. This was nothing special, such migrations were common in both directions. And the first of these was Cuthbert Tunstall, a Balliol man who'd found the Oxford philosophers too dominant. He subsequently became Bishop of Durham. His 1522 De Arte Suputandi, written in Latin, was a practical handbook for business. The first major arithmetic text to be published in England, it was the best of its time. But mathematics books in the vernacular were becoming increasingly popular. The other migrant to Cambridge was Robert Record, a brilliant writer of textbooks in English. Starting here at All Souls, he later became physician to Edward VI and Queen Mary in London. His memorial in his birth town of Tenby is shown here on the right. Record's mathematical texts were so popular that they ran to many editions. They were written... In Greek style in the form of a dialogue between a scholar and his pupil. And most successful was the Ground of Arts of 1543, an arithmetic book that explained the various rules so simply that every child can do it. He also wrote books on geometry, the pathway to knowledge, astronomy, the castle of knowledge, and the charming charmingly named Urinal of Physic on Medicine. (laughs) Popular texts sometimes led to standardisation of notation and in his last book, the 1557 Whetstone of Wit on Algebra, appeared the first ever equal sign. Two parallel lines because no two things can be more equal. Meanwhile, in 1549, Edward VI had set up a royal commission on Oxford. The visitors regarded mathematics as somehow connected with black magic and ordered large quantities of books to be destroyed. Many valuable manuscripts are lost, but fortunately Thomas Allen, the best Oxford mathematician of the late 16th century, discovered some mathematical books in a cart and rescued them. They ultimately ended up here in the Bodleian. But things are generally at a low ebb. Although the Royal Commission decreed that all first year students should study mathematics every day from 12 to 1, great idea, no one is around to teach it. There was one success, however. 1570 saw the first English edition of Euclid's Elements, published by Henry Billingsley, a former Oxford student who combined translating Greek geometry with being a prosperous merchant, and eventually he became Lord Mayor of London. Shortly after this, Thomas Harriot appeared in Oxford. Sometimes described as the greatest English mathematician before Newton, he is best known for helping Walter Raleigh to survey and colonise Virginia and North Carolina. He also wrote extensively on geometry, navigational problems and algebra, And to him, we owe our symbols for less than, greater than, and the cube root symbol. He was also the first to explore the heavens with a a telescope just a few months before Galileo. Although he published little, and his writings mainly survive only in manuscript, they're still being actively worked on by historians of of mathematics, in particular here in Oxford. (laughs) of all the periods covered by this talk the 17th century is possibly the most interesting the century started well when Thomas Bodley appalled by the poor state of repair of the old Duke Humphrey Library gave money to build the school's quadrangle in its centre is the famous Tower of the Five Orders featuring the five types of classical column Doric, Ionic etc with James I perched at the top While around the quadrangle are the schools, such as here, the School of Geometry and Arithmetic. Meanwhile, Merton was the only college in Oxford to have had continuous mathematics teaching since the 14th century. But even here, things were in decline. Henry Saville was a distinguished warden of Merton for 26 years a classical scholar who edited the works of St Chrysostom in eight volumes. Deploring the terrible state of Oxford mathematics, he himself lectured on Euclid's elements and also he lectured on the revolutionary new astronomy of Copernicus. Here's his fine memorial in Merton's chapel, flanked by Euclid and Ptolemy. But his greatest memorials were the civilian professorships he founded in geometry and astronomy in 1619 for persons of character and repute from any part of Christendom, well-skilled in mathematics, and 26 years of age. And just two years later, the applied math chair, the Sedleyan Professor, Professorship of Natural Philosophy, was also founded. The first civilian professor of geometry was Henry Briggs, a Cambridge man who'd also been the first geometry professor at Gresham College in London, founded in 1596 to give free public lectures to the general public, an activity that it still carries out with great success today. Henry Briggs invented the method of long division that we learnt at school and also improved John Napier's new but inconvenient logarithms of 1614. Introducing logs to base 10, Briggs calculated by hand no fewer than 30,000 of these to 14 decimal places, as shown here. His grave is in Merton Chapel, shown on the left. As you can see, it's much simpler than Saville's ornate memorial. Briggs's rival for the civilian chair was Edmund Gunter of Christchurch, inventor of the logarithmic scale later used in the slide rule and the person who introduced the word cosine to mathematics. Henry Saville sent for Gunter who came and brought with him his sector and quadrant and fell to resolving of triangles and doing a great many fine things. Said the grave knight, Henry Saville, Do you call this reading of geometry? This is showing of tricks, man. And so dismissed him with a scorn and sent for Henry Briggs. Meanwhile, tutorials were given in a lively fashion at Trinity College by its president, Ralph Kettle. One of his mathematical problems was to inscribe a triangle in a quadrangle. His solution was bring a pig into the quadrangle and I will set the college dog on him, and he will take the pig by the ear. Then come I and take the dog by the tail and the hog by the tail, and so there you have a triangle in a, quadru- in a quadrangle. <laughs> Quad, irat, faciendum. Kettle was a wonderful Oxford character. I- irreconcilable to, ho- to long hair, he called them ha- hairy scalps he used to walk up and down the dining hall at dinner with a pair of scissors in his muff, cutting students' hair <laughs> while they etched their meal. Lazy students he referred to as turds, taro-rags and scobalotches. <laughs> Wonderful phrase. After the Civil War, the scene moved to Wadham College during a period of great political turmoil, and intellectual ferment. Oxford had strongly supported Charles I, causing the parliamentary visitors to replace all royalist college teachers by those more sympathetic to the parliamentarians. And in 1648 John Wilkins, shown here in the middle, the new Warden of Wadham, gathered a group of brilliant men to discuss philosophical experiments. Not the dry and faulty Aristotelian science and philosophy that was still taught in the university, but the exciting new experimental science that had been advocated by Francis Bacon and others later in the century. Bacon's advancement and prof- Proficience of learning was published in Oxford in 1640. Its rich, richly symbolic title page shows Oxford's pillar appropriately in sunlight while Cambridge's remains in shadow. <laughs> Wilkins's group, numbering up to 30 members, met weekly in his lodgings and at the new coffee houses in the High Street and became known as the Oxford Philosophical Society. It eventually transferred to London, where in 1660 it developed into the Royal Society. One of the Oxford group was John Wallace, civilian professor of geometry for 54 years and one of the most distinguished mathematicians of his time. This fine portrait of him is in the examination schools. Wallace wrote an important text on conic sections, which contained the first appearance of the symbol for infinity, shown there. And his Arithmetica Infinitorum was to influence the young Isaac Newton as a Cambridge undergraduate a few years later. Two other distinguished members of the Oxford Philosophical Society were the chemist Robert Boyle, shown here, and his Christchurch collaborator Robert Hooke, possibly the greatest experimentalist of all time, once described as, like Leonardo da Vinci, but better (laughs) organised. Inventor of the microscope, Hooke's also remembered for his law of springs, as described here in his diary. No portraits of Hooke survive, because Newton, who intensely disliked him, reportedly ordered all pictures of his rival to be destroyed after Hooke's death. Boyle's laboratory was in High Street, opposite All Souls, where he and Hooke conducted experiments on the air pump. And it's here that Boyle's law for gases, PV equals constant, was formulated. And a plaque uh, can still be seen near the site, opposite All Souls, as I said. Another member of the Oxford Philosophical Society was Christopher Wren, who came up to Wadham College as an undergraduate in 1650, impressing everyone with his brilliance in many fields, particularly in mathematics and astronomy. Described by Newton as one of the three leading geometers of his age, he was elected Gresham Professor of Astronomy in London in 1657 and Oxford Civilian Professor of Astronomy in 1661. His later distinguished career as an architect included several Oxford buildings, such as Tom Tower at Christchurch and this magnificent sundial at All Souls. But his most important contribution to Oxford was the Sheldonian theatre, designed in the 1660s for degree ceremonies and other secular events. Its flat ceiling, which seems totally unsupported, was a triumph of architectural design for its time and has been associated with some intricate mathematical calculations that had been carried out some years earlier by John Wallace. There's some controversy on that. (laughs) After Wallace's death in 1603, the civilian chair of geometry passed to Edmund Halley, or Hawley, but not Halley. Halley had attended Oxford as an undergraduate, but spent much of his student career sailing to St Helena to catalogue the stars in the Southern Hemisphere. On his triumphal return, he was awarded an Oxford MA by royal mandate from Charles II. In the middle here is his house in New College Lane, where he lived. Indeed, the two houses here were occupied for some 200 years by successive civilian professors of geometry and astronomy. Halley des- designed an observatory at the top, which can still be seen, and the house is now occupied by new college students. Among his many notable achievements were persuading Isaac Newton to write his Principia Mathematica in the 1680s, producing an impressive scholarly edition of Apollonius's Conics, shown on the left, and becoming Astronomer Royal from 1720 to 42. He is, of course, best remembered for predicting the return of the comet that now bears his name. Throughout the 18th century, Newtonian philosophy flourished, particularly in the old Ashmolean building, now the Museum of the History of Science, opposite Blackwell's. The first public museum in the country, it also contained the first teaching rooms of science and the first teaching laboratory. Lectures on a wide variety of scientific topics were were given here, in particular by the civilian professor of astronomy, James Bradley, also an astronomer royal, who presented more than 70 courses of lectures in the old Ashmolean over 30 years. Bradley's successor was Thomas Hornsby, shown in this recently uh, discovered portrait. Hornsby was was largely responsible for building the Radcliffe Observatory, now in Green Templeton College, which we heard heard, uh, last term in this very room. Europe's best equipped astronomical observatory, it housed the finest instruments of the day. We now move into the 19th century when Oxford went into another decline the professors lectured rarely, and degree examinations were perfunctory. According to the Westminster Gazette, the university had long since ceased to exist except for electoral purposes. It then had its own members of parliament, and that continued up to the Second World War. Well, another source claimed that the idle students spent their time in fornication, wine, and betting much like today, in fact. (laughs) And the dons are no better. At Oriel College, a prudish don was offered port after dinner by the provost. I'd sooner commit adultery than drink wine, he protested. So would we all, so would we all, the provost replied. (laughs) And one day the Oriel bursar couldn't balance the books, and eventually the provost had to point out that he'd put the date under the pound shillings, and pence columns (laughs) on the debit side. Uh, This incompetent bursar was John Henry Newman. For a time, no Oxford student could graduate in mathematics until he'd already graduated in the classics, whereas in Cambridge it was the other way around. And due to this short-lived situation, the myth of Cambridge for maths, Oxford, for arts grew up, mm-hmm. and it's no more true now than it has been for most of the past 800 years. However, change did eventually come. Examinations began to include written papers in addition to the fearsome Oxford viva shown here. Science degrees were introduced in 1849 and the Royal Commission recommended the foundation of a university school of mathematical and physical science. Three years later, the foundation stone was laid for the University Museum, a building that's still used for lectures in the sciences and until until recently also in mathematics but despite the dearth of activity in the early 19th century, some notable figures were associated with Oxford mathematics. The civilian professor of geometry from 1827 to 1860 was the Reverend Baden-Powell in the middle, uh, who wrote textbooks in geometry and calculus and was, was a well-known popularizer of science. If his name seems familiar, it's because one of his sons would later found the Boy Scout movement. His successor, and the best Oxford mathematician for over a century, was Henry Smith, on the right, who wrote important papers on algebra and on the theory of numbers. More familiar to us, of course, is Charles Dodgson, better known as Lewis Carroll, A mathematics lecturer at Christchurch known for his whimsical approach to university uh, uh, university affairs. Dodgson was particularly interested in geometry and was an expert on Euclid's elements writing a famous book called Euclid and his modern rivals favourably comparing Euclid's approach with other geometry textbooks of the time. He was also a pioneer in mathematical logic whose work was later praised by Bertrand Russell and is still discussed by logicians. However, he was not a great lecturer as he himself recognised. On the left is his self-portrait of him lecturing. (laughs) Carroll is, of course, best known for his Alice books and a well-known story, probably not true, but who knows, goes that Queen Victoria, so charmed by Alice's adventures in Wonderland, asked to be sent the next book by its author. This being an elementary treatise on determinants with their application to simultaneous linear equations and algebraical geometry. She was not amused. A more surprising appearance here is Florence Nightingale, best known for her nursing in the Crimean War. She also contributed to the study of statistics, including the development of pie charts, as shown here. For many years, she she corresponded with Benjamin Jowett, the distinguished master of Balliol, shown on the left, about establishing a a Nightingale Chair of Statistics. But sadly, it never materialised. And here's James Joseph Sylvester, a major figure who was unable to secure any Oxbridge post because he was Jewish at a time when dons were required to train for the priesthood of the Church of England. Once the rules changed in 1871, he could then apply for the civilian chair of geometry to which he was appointed in 1883 at the age of 69. Sylvester's inaugural lecture On algebra in the Sheldonian theatre, included a simple, a simply dreadful sonnet that he'd written addressed to a missing member of a family group of terms in an algebraical formula. I won't read it, it's so awful. By the turn of the 20th century, there were three maths professorships in Oxford: the Civilian Chair of Geometry, the Sedlian Chair of Natural Philosophy, and a new one, the Wainfleet Chair in Pure Mathematics attached to Magdalen College. Among the many distinguished holders of these chairs, we will restrict ourselves to just a handful. A major influence on Oxford was the appointment of G.H. Hardy to the civilian chair in geometry. Although mainly known as a Cambridge man, Hardy spent 11 very fruitful years here, establishing a world-famous school in analysis and number theory. It was the happiest time of his life And as he said, I was at my best at a little past 40 when I was a professor at Oxford. The most distinguished pure mathematician in Britain at the time, Hardy published over 300 papers, 100 of which were written here in Oxford. One of Hardy's passions was cricket. Here he leads a team of mathematicians at a British Association meeting held in Oxford in 1926. He called this picture mathematicians versus the rest of the world. <laughs> Another important influence on Oxford mathematics was Waynefleet Professor Henry Whitehead, he's the one on the left, uh, whose school of topology attracted scholars from all around the world. He was also a keen pig farmer who claimed that he derived his mathematical inspiration by scratching the backs of his pigs for an hour every afternoon maybe every mathematics department should, provide a, should buy a pig to help with their research. I did suggest it to the new Mathematics Institute, but no success. In 1936, Whitehead helped to found the Invariant Society, the undergraduate math society that still flourishes today, and the speaker at its first meeting was G.H. Hardy. Another popular and influential figure was Charles Coulson, who at various times held three different chairs maths, physics and chemistry in three different universities, Oxford, Cambridge and London. Coulson was a well-known Methodist lay preacher who was involved with the founding of Oxfam in 1942. Hardy, Whitehead and Coulson were all energetic advocates for a mathematical institute and after occupying various other buildings such as the Radcliffe Science Library and 10 Parks Road, the maths faculty moved into its own home in St Giles in 1966. Meanwhile, Oxford continued to attract many of its best mathematicians, many of the best mathematicians around. In particular, the university has provided many presidents of the London Mathematical Society, including Sylvester, Hardy and Whitehead. In particular, Oxford has been associated with the only two women to be elected to this prestigious position. Dame Mary Cartwright, a former Oxford research student of Hardy's, shown here with Hardy, uh, who later became uh, mistress of Girton College in Cambridge, and more recently Professor, now Dame, Francis Cohen, of Balliol. Yet another former LMS president was Oxford, Sir Michael Attea, civilian professor of geometry, master of Trinity College, Cambridge, president of the Royal Society and holder of the, op- of the Order of Merit. He was also Oxford's first Fields medalist, the equivalent of the Nobel Prize, and is shown here with the other two, Simon Donaldson and Daniel Quillen. While another well-known Oxford figure is Sir Roger Penrose, Coulson's successor as Rouse Professor, who is famous for his work in relativity and cosmology, and as a popularizer of mathematics through his books and lectures. He also invented the Penrose tiling, such as the one shown here, outside Oxford's new Mathematical Institute. But possibly Oxford's best-known populariser of mathematics is Marcus Sotoy, who succeeded Richard Dawkins as Simoni Professor for the Popular Understanding of Science. Marcus is well-known for his outreach activities, such as his many TV and radio programmes, including his award-winning series, The Story of Maths, made with the BBC and the Open University in 2008. And last, but certainly not least, we have Sir Andrew Wiles, who achieved international fame in 1995 by proving Fermat's Last Theorem, which had remained unproved for 250 years. A former Merton College undergraduate, he later received an honorary doctorate from Oxford at which the public orator described him as the Archimedes of our time, the outstanding master of numbers, the incomparable unriddler of the last theorem. Andrew Wiles is now back permanently in Oxford, and the new mathematical institute is named after him. He's shown here, uh, bottom left, uh, with Landon Clay, who's given so much to Oxford Mathematics, and without whom we wouldn't have our magnificent building. So to end, recent expansion in Oxford's mathematical activity has been spectacular, both in breadth and depth. Syllabuses have been continually developed, and new degree subjects have been introduced, maths and philosophy, maths and statistics, maths and computing, and computer science. There are now centres for mathematical biology, financial mathematics, industrial applied mathematics, and much else besides. Oxford's mathematics has indeed gone from strength to strength, Indeed, in the recent REF exercise, uh, Oxford was the the UK's top mathematics research department. So the future looks bright. Thank you very much. (laughs) If I could just say one or two things. Uh, First of all, the Math Institute is open to everybody. Uh, You can go and have your lunch there. It's uh, uh, the the, the public area. There's a cafeteria and lecture theatres. And uh, I've recently uh, did some posters on G.H. Hardy, which can be seen down in the basement. Uh, They've been up there for a term, and they're going to be shortly uh, replaced by some uh, posters on um, John Wallace and then later in the year by Charles Dodgson. So do go down and, and have a look at them. Uh, If you want the book of the film, uh, the Oxford Figures book, uh, there are some uh, leaflets there and Blackwell's have some copies and you can get them for 25% off on presentation of one of those. And finally, uh, since I was the former president of the British Society for the History of Mathematics and we have the current president, Philip Bealey, sitting here, who is incidentally a great expert on John Wallace and that period, Uh, I do happen to have some leaflets for the BSHM uh, if you would like to join, as I hope you all will. Thank you very much.